0: Hello, and welcome to the Flucoma podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Milad Madaher who is a composer, sound artist, programmer and researcher. With a background in computer engineering, Milad mixes computational techniques with a whole host of musical practices and spanning a variety of genres from rock, metal, and film, and theatre to acousmatic, electronic and computer music. His work has been featured at festivals across the world, including NIME, ICMC, Klinkgut, and Beast. Today, we will be learning about his creative process and his various uses of the Flucoma toolkit. So, Milad, hello, and thank you for joining me today. Hello, Jacob. Um, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. Uh, So perhaps you could begin by uh, telling us how you got into music and perhaps also um, some of your background in computer engineering.
1: Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, I, I got into music from, from a very early age, uh, you know, as, as long as I can remember, you know, uh, there, there was always an instrument at home and, and my dad and my uncles uh, played Persian uh, music instruments so they they play sitar and tar and, uh, you know, I grew up in a family that sort of cherished music um, uh, and, you know, my brother played the guitar. So I was always around music as, as a kid. Um, and. Uh, I need to separate those because my computing background is also kind of feeds into it. It started from, from an early age as well, uh, so you know, music and computers were always there um, uh, growing up. Um, uh, so yeah, as a you know, from from the age of eight and nine or eight or nine, I started playing the violin, and then uh, as a teenager, I was playing in youth orchestras. Uh, I sort of taught myself the piano, and uh, when I was in high school, I um, got super into metal and uh uh yeah i am uh you know met a few of my classmates um who were also into who shared that same taste and uh, the subgenres genres of metal that we uh we shared around that time so this was like mid-2000s so it was at the peak of uh, alternative you know new metal or just just past the peak of it you know um so we were really into that into that stuff and um yeah I think I was 16 or 17 I started writing music uh so we formed a band and we were covering bands at first and uh I was the main vocalist um and I started also playing guitar for the band you know it's easy enough and um <clears throat> I started writing music for the band and that sort of got me into composition and you know most of us in the band were were classically trained anyway so we could you know Read and write music, and uh, uh, yeah, and that's sort of where my journey as a composer began, um, and and became more and more serious. Uh, And you know, I'm here now, (laughs) kind of continuing that journey onwards. <clears throat> Which, you know, to be honest with you, I, I did not expect to, to end up here doing what I'm doing now at all. You know, When I was 15 or 16, I, I had completely different goals. I wanted to write film music and I did uh, for, for a time. Uh, uh, yeah, We had sort of, uh, one of our bassist in our band, I was kind of uh, my all time music partner as well. I've written most amount of music with him than any other person in my life as, as a duo. So we sort of worked very well together. Um, our sort of creative waves are kind of synced or scan sync up so um he's also a film director, and uh, so he had links with lots of other sort of theater and, and film directors studying uh, at his university at the art University of Tehran um, so you know we got commissions from small student projects um, to sort of bigger ones, and we kind of uh, both got into writing film music, so it kind of expanded from there. Um, so to backtrack, uh, my computer background, my computer engineer background, stems from the fact that I, you know, grew up with an engineer dad, um, and um, an electrical engineer, and uh, so he, you know, he got me into electronics from a very early age. You know, he would buy me sort of self-assembly kits, you know, making FM radio on a breadboard and whatnot with <laughs> following schematics and uh, we always had computers lying around as well because of my dad's job so you know i remember before i was born you know there was already and when i was born and afterwards there was already a commodore 64 and you know it was 1991 so it wasn't that long ago but you know it's iran so you know tech was a bit behind um so yeah i remember as a, as a kid i used to just play video games on them but um commodore 64 ran on basic as, as the OS. And I remember my brother taught me sort of the simplest of, of codes, which was the beep function. And uh, you could, I think that's probably the first line of code I've ever written in my life. I must have been three or four, probably four, <laughs> four something. Uh, yeah, he taught me the, the beep command. And um, I would just put it in and I would put different pitches in. And uh, and at, at that time, I did not know what those letters meant. I just I just knew that they went from A to B, you know, all the way B, C, you know, like um, yeah. So I would put random pictures in, and uh, yeah. So fast forward, I, I studied uh, computer hardware engineering, uh, my bachelor's uh, for my bachelor's degree. Uh, but you know, I was always I stayed a musician. You know, I uh, and and I had our band as well. And uh, we we were recording albums and we recorded two sort of one AP and one full LP, one larger album. Uh, so uh, we were also doing shows uh, underground in Iran, of course, it was illegal and it kind of still is a very oppressed uh, environment for, for musicians uh, and just generally artists um, all around. Um, still to this day unfortunately so yeah it was it was risky and it was uh uh very exciting to to be in that underground scene as well um so while yeah i was i was doing all that while while i was uh continuing my sort of first degree in bachelor in uh you know my bachelor's uh, at that time i was a bit con conflicted with the sort of dichotomy between them um uh, admittedly i i was not aware of. Of computer music or electroacoustic music at that point, um, I was just fully immersed, sort of in <clears throat> in, the, in the metal scene and then the popular music scene, uh, and you know, stemming from that, film and theater music. Um, uh but i always knew i wanted to study music properly so um i I had no academic background in music so i was you know i I was trained and uh you know i I received classical training but you know i didn't really go to a conservatoire or university to study music until my masters basically when i came to the uk um so uh, at that point i I already had a portfolio of, of works that i'd done for film and you know uh Theater and, and my albums with, with my band. So um, uh, yeah, I got accepted at the Royal Welsh College to do a composition course, and then I came here uh, to the UK. Um, and it was at that point that you know I was introduced to electroacoustic music and and computer music, and and you know the wonderful tutors that I had um, at Royal Welsh College. They, they really encouraged me to kind of utilize my computing skills, and I discovered Max. Um, and I, uh, I already had a background in coding and I, you know, I understood the basics of, of programming. So, um, I picked it up really quickly. Uh, and of course documentation and, you know, help files and Macs are, are amazing to, to pick, to, you know, really get someone going really quickly. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of my background and where I come from and how I got to where I am. And after I finished my master's, I, I, of course, did a PhD at at Beast, the University of Birmingham. uh, And I focused on uh, data sonification and science art. Uh, In particular, I I took data, protein and RNA data from uh, cancer cells. Uh, It was a collaboration with Barts Cancer Institute in London. And um, uh, they provided me with with this data and uh, I designed various patches and I sonified this data and I wrote music that reflected cancer as a disease from a biomolecular standpoint. So it was a collection as a portfolio of science art uh, pieces. Uh, actually, it was a mixed portfolio because there was a bunch of patchwork that uh, dealt with the technical side of the data simplification. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's the gist of it, I would say.
0: <laughs> yeah, OK. Well, so as you were just saying, so yeah, data simplification, um, is something that's figured quite a lot in your work um, and so you've written about it with subject of your phd um so we'll be going into some of the specific details of the techniques that you used in a moment but um i wonder if perhaps first you could talk about this uh, this concept of data sonification in general um what it Means for your work, um, and perhaps also talk about your metaphor of, of the strata, which uh, uh, it comes from your PhD as well. Um, so, what does data sonification offer you as an artist, um, and how do you approach data from a, an aesthetic point of view? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. So, um, personally, uh, I mean, at the beginning, data sonification itself uh, sort of provided me immediate sort of access to to novel material that. I would not have, have attained you know personally uh, or manually I should say well not not manually manually but you, you, I get what I mean um, uh, but um, as I well as I dived into it you know then specifically when you mentioned the strata metaphor um, so I was um, I, I discovered some things about it uh, and you know doing literature review and, and certain sort of controversies and, and friction in with practitioners that use data solidification became apparent to me. Um, uh, you know what it provides to me personally to, to kind of give an answer to that before I move on to the strata metaphor is is another dimension, is another sort of uh, set of controllers and set of uh, almost almost like another you know, performer really uh, the data itself. That uh, that feeds into what I do, that uh, that interjects me and that that guides me sometimes, uh, you know, in, in in live performances that I do and improvised performances that I do. Um, so not only it provides me with, with material, the novel material that I can make use of in compositions, in, in you know, fixed compositions, but it all I have a sort of closer uh, relationship with it in, in terms of performance uh so yeah the the strata metaphor is is actually kind of a a, a later fruit of, of the of the project and it, it came about uh as a result of sort of common questions that i i was just asked quite a lot during my phd about why i was doing what i was doing uh because essentially what i was doing as uh, i was i was writing music about the science of cancer and i was using uh, this this conceptual framework called the uh, hallmarks of cancer, cancer, which is uh, a, a sort of widely accepted conceptual framework that is proposed by Douglas Hanahan and Robert Weinberg, and, and pretty much everyone in, in the cancer research field kind of recognizes this. Uh, so it's kind of canon, and um, and it kind of, as I said, it provides a, a conceptual framework for various biomolecular processes and within the cell itself. Uh, you know, from a biomolecular standpoint what happens in the cell you know what sort of pro- proteins change and how do they change how do they sort of certain inhibitors or um uh inducers kind of worked uh sorry work together that causes a certain condition uh or a hallmark in the cell uh, that is becoming cancerous um so i was i was taking this data and i was using the narrative of, of of these frameworks, these hallmarks, as as uh, uh, you know, musical narratives. So I was translating them. I was I was employing lots of artistic tools. I was you know juxtaposing material. I was drawing analogies between sound material and and what was described. Um, and uh, the sound material itself was generated from the data that I was that was getting um, uh, from from Barthes Cancer Institute from the research that they were conducting um but essentially the story that i was trying to tell so i would sonify this this data and then i would you know uh in the beginning I, I had a purist mentality i just went with whatever i got so whatever the design of the sonification system produced and of course there was my influence in that to a, to a significant extent as well i would just take that and present that but then as i went on i i realized that that was not really enough i wasn't able to generate really interesting musical results so I I was doing things more in post um, which were still um, informed by the context behind the data um, and where you know whenever I presented my uh, my work in, in conferences and talks and seminars I, I often this this question often came up uh, well, you know, so we, you know, the question was, that, yeah, we know that what you're doing, yes, you're, you're taking this data, you're turning it into sound, and then you take that sound and then they're manipulating it. And, you know, also your design choices in, in the patch patches that are sonifying your data are, are affecting your results. So why work in this way at all if the listener? Uh, so they, they would ask, can the listener really like identify any, anything about this data in particular in the sounds? And the, the answer was no. They cannot really. That's not really the purpose of, of what I'm doing. I'm creating pieces of music. Um, then they would say, "Well, then why are you sonifying this data? You know, what's the point? You know, uh, why why not just use you know just oscillators and and you know, random algorithms instead?" Um, so this question kept popping up and and really bothered me because I, I kind of felt that there was there was value in what I was doing and you know that that you know I was doing it this way because, well, it meant something, it was the same data and it was related to the context of, of, of the pieces that I was writing. So it made sense, it, it had conceptual significance. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, set about to, uh, to, to answer this question. And the Strata metaphor was a result of the research that I was doing. And this was towards the end of my PhD towards, you know, during the writing up process, really, or the last year of writing up, I kind of put this paper together with, with Scott Wilson, my supervisor. Um, so yeah, I did a literature review and, and there's, there's always this contention. So this question also feeds into, or reflects this, contention that, uh, or friction in the field where people, you know, the boundary uh, between uh, scientific data sonification and artistic data sonification is really blurry. And often, you know, things get mixed up and, and, you know, someone with scientific expectations uh, is expecting some, you know, very rigorously designed data sonification system that produces comprehensible results comes and listens to a a piece of music that employs data sonification and says, "Well, I can't understand anything. This is rubbish. You know, like this is arbitrary. It might as well be random sounds." Um, so uh, yeah, I, I did a literature review, and uh, you know, I found that there there are certain practitioners who, who already propose certain solutions. You know, like uh, different terminology, like Scott Gresham and Lancaster, for instance, proposed you know uh, different orders of sonification, like first order sonification, second order sonification. Uh, uh, to kind of tackle that, uh, Carlos Scoletti proposed, you know, not using the term data sonification at all um, if you're writing a piece of music, uh, you know, instead using the term data-driven processes or data-driven music to kind of uh, really avoid the, the contention, not really address it. Um, so yeah so you know i was talking with scott and i was like well this person I've, I've done this literature review and this person says it like this and that person says it like that and so um but that that doesn't really quite quite cut it you know that does not really provide a solution to the problem uh we're still kind of lost you know if, if we want to talk about this dichotomy between scientific and artistic data certification or whether they, they there, there should be a dichotomy between them. maybe that's what's lacking, a framework that kind of explains what is going on or gives you kind of a roadmap to see where you stand as a data sonifier. So that's, that's how it came about. We uh, kind of identified three categories um, and uh, three categories of artistic data sonification uh, that um, uh, are not orthogonal. Um, And and we we don't consider them orthogonal or separate. We consider consider them cumulative uh, and, you know, much like a strata. Um, One builds on another. And uh, the three uh, categories are generative, elusive, and curatorial sonification. And and based on the importance of conveying salient aspects of data to uh, to the user who's designing, uh, to the designer, the user, and the target audience, uh, you know, uh, approaches can can occupy different categories uh simultaneously so you know w- works can be received on, on different levels um based on who the target audience is and uh what the purpose is so generative to just give you a brief uh, explanation generative is, is is usually the kind of approach to data sonification which uh m- mainly benefits the uh you know the autistic results so it's uh, there is little or no concern for, for the meaning of, of the data or conveying any specific information about the data itself. What matters in, data, uh, in generative data sonification is just getting the, the, the sonic results, uh, which can in that case be generated by anything. So, uh, you know, um, the data that is used in, in that process might as well be fake or arbitrary or random generated. It doesn't matter really what sort of data is being used. What matters is how intriguing the results are, and um, uh, yeah. So you can we can also kind of draw a link uh, even between serialism or post serialism practices uh, with data sonification using so that that would kind of translate into data sonification in a way. It's not a really robust uh, you know, uh, description, I would say, but uh, uh, you know, using instrumental and vocal resources, you can say. Um, or you know chance-based uh operations like Cajun uh or uh, music in that sense um so yeah well, what I was doing of course in my project uh was was not generative strictly I I did have pieces that employed certain characteristics of, of generative sonification but what I was doing was uh sort of a layer further uh a layer further down or further up you know, depending on how you look at the the strata, um, which uh, we ended up calling elusive uh, sonification. And that is where uh, we can start realizing a bridge between the science and the art. So with generative sonification, there's, as I said, there's really no benefit to the science. What matters is just the the use of the data by the artist. Um, But with elusive sonification, uh, the, the sonifier alludes to uh the data set the meaning inherent in within the data uh or the context behind it uh the relations between you know uh, data values um what really sets it apart is is that um is 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 that conceptual weight that comes with uh with the sonification and it's important that if you're employing elusive sonification that the listener knows the source of the data set and where it's coming from in generative sonification, that's not important at all. It doesn't matter. What matters, is, as I said, is only the, the sonic output, but with elusive sonification, that does matter. So contextual information provided with the sonification experience or a way of acquiring it is, is crucial in achieving this, this level of, of sonification. Um, the end result, of course, is, you know, uh, still the, the the listener will will not be able to figure out or understand how exactly the data, uh, is being heard in the sound or the relations, uh, within the data are, are not, you know, necessarily immediately translated into the sound, for the listener, uh, what ma- matters is that, um, scaffold, which we ended up calling it this, this sort of con- conceptual scaffold, uh, that they, uh, the, the user can hang their experience of, of, of the sonification on. Uh, and in a sense, you know, it provides a tangible experience of abstract numerical data. And because the listener knows where this data is coming from or what this data is, it kind of functions partly educational and part, sort of partly uh, as an outreach activity for the science. So it does feed back into the science. And what, what I was doing in my PhD and my methodology and my my approach mainly fell into, into the second layer of, of, of alluding to uh, the science behind the data. And of course, if you went further, you know, the third layer, if you really wanted to uh, convey specific salient aspects of the data to, to the listener uh, or to the user, disregard anything else, any other part of the data that is unnecessary or, or can be considered as noise, so you're really focusing or curating information to, to the user, uh, then that's a different approach um and uh we ended up calling that curatorial sonification. so with that you go further into the realm of pedagogical you, you really your intention is not to create an, a piece of music uh as opposed with elusive sonification which is you know mainly used for creating pieces of art you know installations of music what, what matters is creating a sublime sensory auditory experience in elusive sonification that allows the public or the, the listener to engage with the science behind the data with curatorial sonification. Of course, the intention is to convey uh, accurately, convey comprehensible information. Um, so, yeah, the result of curatorial sonification, of course, is, is uh, auditory displays. And we can see it in the works of like, uh, Mark, the late Mark Ballora, many, numerous uh, sonification projects that, that he did. Uh, you know, Lily Asquith's uh, um, uh, sonification of particle collision data uh, and many, many, many more projects that um, are, out, are out there and uh, they're more sort of practical or in that case, you know, scientific uh, approach towards uh, turning data into sound. Uh, yeah, sorry, went on another tangent there, but um, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of brief um abstract of, of the um maybe not so brief of the strata metaphor what it provides to me is that it it allows me to uh identify who well first of all identify who i'm i'm i'm, I'm producing sonifications for what's the purpose who the target audience is and and then you know what uh what sh- what i should keep in mind in terms of design uh, in terms of output you know results um uh, you know, what should I focus on if I'm designing a system, a sonification system that is supposed to convey information, then, you know, I know I should not be convoluting that information. And instead, I should actually be clearing out the noise and make sure that I uh, that I'm highlighting the information to, to be conveyed. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we were hoping that this would at least uh, I mean, it was it was published in, in Leonardo um, in October. So it's, it's fresh. Um, but we were hoping that it would at least address this this long-standing contention that people have written about that you know well you know there is, is this artistic is this scientific you know what why are you doing this what's the point you know so some of these questions and this friction that has has been there um we're hoping that this would at least provide um a stepping stone and in, in, you know in addressing some of that
0: yeah and there's some really Really beautiful um, ways of thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, sounds really fascinating, and it, it kind of um, made me think of some of James Bradbury's work, who who worked on the Flucoma project. And and yeah, he 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 didn't really do data sonification as such. Uh, he kind of took processes. For example, he did a lot of um, I think it's called data moshing. Uh, where where he kind of uh took he scraped his entire hard drive um and appended a wave header to each file and sort of transformed it into sound. Um which could or could not be considered as as data sonification, I suppose. But um and but yeah what what's interesting is that um over the course of his PhD. Yeah, uh, he. Yeah, he. He kind of had different trajectories of of taking that sound, highly curating it and arranging it into, you know, the beautiful music he makes. And then he has some projects where he just like keeps the original data as was and kind of makes no transformations at all. Um, and yeah, so I, I suppose this what you're talking about really kind of gives a an interesting framework of thinking about those processes for the artist to think about how how you engage, how, how you engage with um with uh, the sonic material that you're creating but so yeah it seems that um in your work the 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 cement, semantic kind of uh, sig- signification is, is very important then and, yeah.
1: it is in my phd work yes it was yeah. it was kind of uh central to to deriving narrative out. Text um, and <clears throat> uh, yeah, in terms of I mean what you were you what you were describing the the, the practice of sonification you know, file uh, file types that that's uh, that reminded me of Al Bonotto's, um, uh work as well. So he has this work data to AIFF, AIFF, where he has sonified various you know files with different you know headers and, and file structure of course. Uh, and, you know, um, the, the handbook kind of refers to this as some form of oddification, although, you know, the, the term modification itself is not really consistently applied in, in, in the hand, handbook either. Um, but that it was curious that you said that because that's, that's one of the specifically uh, one of the examples that uh, we kind of covered in the, in the article as well, talking about generative data sonification, where, you know, that that practice of uh, sonifying uh different files essentially uh which you can also achieve in, in audacity uh you know you can just drop the import any file into audacity and, and you would get immediately an authentication of that um, which is yeah it's 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 fascinating um I mean it's it's like the the strata metaphor is not really to to say whether there's value in one or there isn't you know uh it's, it's more sort of differentiating where you stand or knowing what you're doing and, and what, yeah. that, what that would sort of entail.
0: Yeah, of uh, course, of
1: course. Yeah.
0: yeah and I, I do know that James is a fan of too, as, as, as am I.
1: <laughs> as am I as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so perhaps bef- quickly before getting into uh, some more kind of concrete examples of some of these things that we've been talking about, perhaps just to round off the kind of uh, introduction to your practice. Um, there, there are two major aspects of your work, um, which are on one hand, uh, live improvised performance, um, and on the other, more kind of fixed acousmatic pieces. Um, I wonder if you want to perhaps talk about these two practices, um, and the differences between the two approaches and and if there are common themes or approaches that may span between these different activities.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um well the live improvised aspect of my work is something fairly recent. And it's something that um I would blame flucoma for as well. <laughs> uh it's a kind of instigator for for me really diving deep down in that rabbit hole. Um, <clears throat> um but yeah, it's, it's something that I started in, I would say, uh, the third, second, third year of my PhD. So up, mm-hmm. the, up until that point, I was mainly writing fixed uh, uh pieces. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, in terms of how I generated material, it was always through improvisation anyway. So, you know, because I, I built these Sonifying sonifier patches and I would just sit in the studio uh, playing uh, around with them for, for hours and hours and I would record that material and I still that's still the way I work in terms of generating material this day I, uh, to this day I, I still do the same thing um, but you know at, at that point I, I really didn't think about performing this that these in, improvisations you know live to, to audiences um, <clears throat> It really came about when I started uh, experimenting with catarty um, or catarty uh, and concatenative synthesis. And uh, uh, so that's kind of one of the common themes between my aquismatic work nowadays and, and live improvisation work is is the use of grains, is, is the use of granular synthesis and concatenative synthesis. That's something that really connects them or perhaps was, was the one of the culprits of, of you know, swinging me or pushing me towards uh, live improvisation um, itself, you know, as performance. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, my experiments with with RT kind of, uh, you know, I started recording some of some of the improvisations that I was doing, um, and uh, I started uh, also. Implementing structure and and sort of directives uh, or conceptual directives, you know, stemming again from uh, hallmarks of cancer, um, <clears throat> which I I was um, focused on around that time, uh, and and experimenting, you know, with with uh, the extent of my control and the extent of data driven elements <clears throat> that were uh, in play during performance, and and this sort of strand. Uh, of of uh, you know of, of exploration was was kind of what encouraged me even further to to keep going and to to actually play live. So you know, recording my performances and then realizing that actually you know that doesn't sound bad. You know, um, uh, I could actually do this at a concert, and uh, there's there's enough intrigue in it. Hopefully, that it it's not going to bore people out um, out of their minds. Um, uh yeah so in terms of material generation uh, i think improvisation itself and spontaneity spontaneous response or musical expression is still very strong when i'm when i'm working uh and uh it's just different modes of presentation really of course with, with fixed compositions you know you've got a lot more time to, 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 to uh, get you know feedback sort of extended feed, feedback through, through time and, and uh, you know uh the more time you spend working on a piece of course like the the more you realize different things about it and um uh different things that you could change or improve or or you know uh develop further or and and those experiments kind of lead the piece somewhere else so um yeah but of course with with live improvisation it's it's all in the moment and that aspect of it is something that I found uh or I came to find really um, intoxicating, uh, you know, being fully in the moment and not really knowing what's going to happen uh, and just starting something with pure, sort of pure free improvisation with, with certain material and then ending up somewhere completely unexpected, that's something that I uh, personally really enjoy nowadays and it's pretty much become or consumed my, my practice. I mean, I still uh, I write fixed pieces. And in fact, I have an album coming out soon, which is um uh, a collection of fixed pieces mainly written in supercollider there's there's some flucoma generated sounds uh and uh using my patches in, in max as well but mostly it's in supercollider so the live coding as well uh, uh also is is uh, kind of um kind of intoxicating and I, I remember scott wilson once told me that you know programming can be really intoxicating man like you gotta be careful <laughs> and you know i totally agree with him because you know it just pulls you in and (laughs) um, and then you realize that you spend months just working on on a patch just changing things and have not produced any musical results so maybe live improvisation in a sense also remedies that for me because i can just take that patch to a concert and force myself to make music with it you know rather than sitting at my desk here and Changing things, you
0: know,
1: (laughs) very minute uh, improvements. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, well, I certainly understand that uh, dilemma of uh, spending months on a patch without uh, actually making any music with it. Yeah, certainly. But I'm I'm glad to hear that Flucoma instigated uh, that part of your practice. Then, part that's uh, it's good to hear. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Yeah uh so yeah I'd, I'd love to get into some uh into some more kind of uh concrete examples about some of the stuff that we've been uh that we've been talking about um and sort of in passing maybe hear about some of the ways in which you've been using some of the tools um so one piece that um uses some of the the data sonification techniques that, that we've been talking about um is malignant grains from 2020 uh, 2020 sorry uh so which uses decomposition and reconcatenation um it also stands at a interesting crossroads between improvisation and electro acoustic music which you've just kind of been talking about. Um so yeah I wonder if you could talk about the piece um and perhaps explain ha- how it works. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, malignant grains, I would say, is is is, is, a, is a significant piece because that that was the piece that started my sort of live improvisation practice. Um, uh, that, that that was the beginning of it all. Um, that's where where I started recording my my performances, and I realized, okay, I can I can do this actually as um, as a set, as a performance set. Um, <clears throat> the way that it works, it, it primarily incorporates or uses CatRT, but a modified version of CataRT that um, uh, at the, at actually for malignant grains, uh, it was partially data-driven, uh, but it was mostly controlled by me. Uh, and it, in many senses, it was an exploration of the capabilities of and, and versatility of, of CataRT, uh, but nonetheless it was using sonified material so that the sound material that was being decomposed and reconcatenated was, was all generated by my other patches um, which sort of incorporated other approaches to data sonification parameter mapping model-based sonification um, <clears throat> uh, and also some recorded material was there as well some recorded material from uh, the environment so and the ambience of of uh, of of the laboratories of, of Bars Cancer Institute uh, you know I did a couple of recording sessions there, uh, where I recorded uh, mass spectrometers and uh, you know, different lab equipments that uh, the mass spectrometer was actually responsible for generating the data so that I was using. so I thought that was that was an interesting uh, kind of angle to have or sound material to have. So it was you know, a combination of these sounds um, that was going into Kata-T, uh and um, uh, then of course I was manipulating different parameters, manipulating textual elements of, of of the output of of CATART, as well as a gestural articulation. Some of those textual elements were, were also uh, mapped to uh, to the sort of data traverse patch that I had, which uh, you know traversed my my high throughput massive data set in a time based manner, and, and that was sort of one of the key patches uh that i made initially in, in my research which was not really musical itself at all it was just you know uh traversing through the data in a time based manner because and the the time based aspect of it was because i intended to use it in a musical sense so i wanted it to uh to to kind of be you know paced at a at a, at a certain you know uh, rate um so yeah, I, I, I started uh, experimenting with, with, this, uh, with this modified catati and uh, that was sort of what gave birth to Malignant Grain. So I started doing uh, um, you know, some, some sets, some improvised sets, and uh, I eventually picked one that I was happy with uh, as a recorded uh, presentation of that improvisation. Uh, but of course I played that piece or improvised that piece in concerts. And every time it was, it was different, uh, but not entirely different. So as I said, I had directives. I had aesthetic directives like structure and, and uh, uh, you know pace of development of material uh, that were derived from from cancer research. So for instance, um, uh, every improvisation that I did, I, I started with you know really crackling short grains uh, and very sparse grains, and from that I built into really complex and rich textual drones. And this, this idea of, of, of building from, from a tiny sort of uh, small element to a larger sort of malignant massive mass of sound was was directly, you know, kind of derived from malignant, the idea of malignant growth, the idea of, you know, a singular cell uh, organisms becoming malignant and, and forming sort of, you know, macroscopic tumors. Um, so that that was one sort of... For instance, aspect that uh, was directed in the improvisation, um, uh, yeah, and, and of course, you know, it it, uh, it is also significant because it it sits in, as I said, it was at the moment of inception uh, of of my uh, live improvisation practice, and I went on to develop the, the modified cato patch further, which resulted in in another piece um, which came after, um, and it was titled Malignant Angiogenesis. And uh, that is in many, you know, this Malignant Grains, uh, this piece, this improvised set was in many ways uh, an independent study for, for that piece. That, that was a much bigger piece. It was an audiovisual piece uh, as well. And, uh, and, and then from that point onwards, of course, I was, I was introduced to a flucoma and I realized that uh, I can actually uh, make my own catharty instrument. Uh, using Flucoma, which I did, and uh, that, that led on to you know other pieces, other live improvised pieces like Data Dialogues that also incorporates uh, modular synths, uh, and so it's, it's a multi-channel live improvisation uh, piece. Um, so uh, yeah, in many ways, it's, it is also significant in that way that it kind of led into, uh, into more developments and, uh, and expanding on, on what I was doing in my improvisation practice.
0: Mm. That's interesting to hear that um that yeah the uh, the data sonification is at different levels it's not just the the creation of the sonic material it's also mapping to, to to control data but also in this kind of macroscopic um trajectory of the piece as well it's interesting to hear that it's it's really got this kind of overarching thing. Um I'm I, I'm interested to to know, so given the uh, the sort of elusive approach to to data sonification that you talk about, how how you present that piece to an audience? How 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 do you how how do you let them know what's happening? What 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 kind of what intel do you give them uh, before you start playing? Uh,
1: yeah, so so uh, mostly, I mean, in, in sort of academic concert music settings, uh, maybe not necessarily academic, but concert music settings, of course, you have the medium of program notes, and uh, and a lot of that information, although briefly shared with with the with the audience, was was written in program notes, uh, you know, telling them where this data is coming from, first of all, and of course, those who are who were intrigued or who were who were curious would always approach me after the concert, and they would ask more detailed questions, like how exactly did you do it, like, you know, what was uh, directing your impo- improvisation? And of course, I would share details like I did with you about like more specific um, uh, elements uh, that were guiding my performance. Uh, yeah, uh, but th- I guess that's that's the tricky part, you know, especially in concert music, of course, you know, not everyone really looks at program notes all the time. so it is a problem of course you know i mean i have also experimented with actually you know using you know text as as voice you know using voice reading out text inside uh, inside the piece itself so you know you would hear some uh, you know a voice sort of sharing a little bit of information or clarity that you know where that this is the data set or this is where it's coming from or you know with malignant angiogenesis as i said it was an uh, audiovisual piece so Having that visual aspect uh, was another sort of um, way to tackle this, to kind of at least highlight uh, that there is there's some data in, in play here, and that's that's what is guiding it and uh, uh, hinting at it, uh, so alluding to it, you know, in a sense, which is you know, the essence of elusive sonification. Uh, but that's that's crucial. Yeah, the audience needs to know that. Um, where the data is coming from, otherwise it'll be experienced as as scientific. otherwise it might as well be arbitrary if they don't know where 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 it's come
0: from mm. yeah. Yeah. um so you talked there about uh about using some of the Flucombe tools to make your own RT uh, <laughs> instrument yeah uh, I wonder if you maybe want to talk about that process um, what you know obviously all the respects RT, what was perhaps missing in that interface that you wanted to include why why you felt that you wanted to build it up again and and yeah maybe talk us through the sort of workings of that
1: uh, yeah of course uh i mean the main reason that i that i um embarked on this on this on this uh, little project was purely cur- curiosity at the beginning it wasn't that katati was for me not working it, it was but you know I, I as a programmer I, I had an itch that I wanted to scratch which I know you can also relate to um and I uh yeah I, I saw James Bradbury's uh sort of uh design of, of a 2D corpus explorer using Coma and that really inspired me uh and uh, and I thought well I want to do this myself and I want to um and then I want to experiment with it I want to try to augment it and, and grow it from there, which is uh, what, what I've been doing for the past couple of years, I would say, or a year and a half that, you know, um, I, I created the um, the two-dimensional Corpus Explorer patch. Uh, so it's, it's grown quite a bit now, like, you know, it has four different voices or four different sort of Corpi that, that can play at the same time. And uh, uh, there's a host of sort of Features like you know automating different parameters and um, uh, also recording live input and concatenating and uh, concatenate uh, splitting and concatenating it in, in real time, as well as machine listening, uh, which which manipulates different parameters of playback, as well as corpus uh, navigating the two dimensional corpus explorer. Um, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, and and also I. Uh, Simon Smith, the, the sound technician at uh, the University of Birmingham, who uh, was a colleague of mine at that point when I was uh, doing my PhD at, at the university, I, uh, he was also very interested in it. And uh, together, we kind of formed this like little Max Club um, at the university. Um, there, there was unfortunately no Max Club at that point. Uh, I, I don't know if there is now uh, either, but um, uh, well, there is, there's ours, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not there anymore, unfortunately. Um, so we, any, anyway, we formed this small Max Club and uh, uh, we, we started sort of piggybacking ideas and, and sharing patches and, and troubleshooting and debugging each other's work, um, uh, which also ended up uh, ended us playing together as well as a duo. And we occasionally do that. So we kind of have similar versions of, 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 of the same patch, the same sort of core design. Um, uh, but each of our sort of patches have different capabilities, uh, which is suited to to you know um, our own uh, specific uh, uses or practices. Um, yeah, and and then obviously the the machine learning objects uh, in uh, in the Flucoma, Flucoma, uh, Flucoma sorry Flucoma, uh toolkit are, are magnificent, and I've um, and I find myself experimenting with them all the time, like even to solve some some very simple task. I often find myself going to, uh, you know, the multilayer perceptron regress, regression model, um, uh, which sometimes you might, you know, someone might look at it and be, and be like, that's, that's really unnecessary. You don't really need to train a regressor network to normalize some incoming values. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of that experimental uh, that, you know, that itch that I tend to do it just, just for the sake of doing it. Um, uh, so, yeah, that um, I've, I've made use, uh, made a lot of use, actually, uh, of, of the of various objects in, um, in the Flucoma Toolkit um, um, in the past couple of years or a year and a half that I've been developing um, these patches. Uh, And especially in terms of live audio input, uh, nowadays uh, I'm experimenting with um, uh, instrumental live instrumental inputs. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm using sort of chroma analysis uh, objects and and, and pitch analysis objects to um, uh, to exert control um, some control on on certain aspects or certain parameters of the patch, but not not all of them. And there's this kind of interplay uh, between me and and uh, the machine listening um, module, uh, depending on what sort of audio input I'm I'm working with, and you know what data I've trained the uh, which I've trained the model with. I'm using at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah. And shout out there to Simon Smith, who was who was on the podcast, um, yeah. perhaps a year ago, maybe a bit more. I can't quite remember, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, well it's it's good to hear that uh, the existence Thank of you. max clubs uh <laughs> <in> <laughs> the world. Um so you're talking there a bit about uh, malignant and geogenesis which I must admit I've not sure what that word means so maybe you could, <laughs> you could clarify. But uh yeah you were talking about um the an audio the audiovisual aspect of it so kind of informing about um about some of the semantic signification behind the piece. So I was just curious as to how that audiovisual aspect works, is, is, is it mapped to the patch? Is it Gitter processing maybe, or, or how does that work?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it, is, it is actually fully uh, implemented in Max MSP using GitGL objects. Uh, and that was, that was another tangent or rabbit hole that I dived into, um, uh, but that had, you know, a, a, a good cause <laughs> or a good reason um uh so yeah the um uh, the animation patch in that uh in that piece actually is a fully sort of autonomous uh direct director in a sense and i designed it in that way because i wanted to fully focus on improvising and i i needed my hands free to operate the faders and, and the knobs and i uh and i did leave myself some control to just you know hit hit a button uh and and progress the scene but uh, it's, it's essentially an audio reactive patch, um, uh, that, uh, in addition to, you know, having, uh, 3D elements in the, in, in, in the digital world context, like moving or, or changing or being manipulated based on, uh, based on the input audio or the generated audio, it also, uh, transitions or directs from, dif- from different scenes to one another or, or back to sort of, uh, uh the 3d environment and um there uh, the the material that we used for that so that that piece is a result of a collaboration between myself and a visual artist friend of mine uh esam hemati faros who's uh who's iranian and uh uh he's a painter uh um and uh a, a, an animator and um, um uh, yeah he's, he's a very close friend of mine and he was always very uh, interested in, in my work so you know we would have. Chats about what I'm doing, and I would describe my work. Uh, and he he, uh, he was quite inquisitive about it. He would ask questions like, "What what does that mean?" He's like, "What are you exactly doing?" So I would explain to him, you know, uh, a bit more in depth uh, the concept behind the piece, um, like what angiogenesis is. For that, for example, to answer your question, uh, is the process of uh, the formation of, of blood vessels uh, in the body. Um, uh, whether microscopic or macroscopic, that that process is called angiogenesis, and um, uh, um, and it's a natural process. So normal cells and you know normal sort of tissue uh, generation depends on angiogenesis. But what happens in in cancer cells and uh, is that the switch for angiogenesis is, is always on, is chronically on. Normal cells uh, or normal tissue. Uh, basically, it can regulate that switch. So, you know, if, if mm-hmm. you know you're, uh, there's a wound that needs healing and the new blood vessels need to be formed, so the switch will be on. Or, you know, menstrual cycling, for instance, uh, the switch will be on. Uh, but then it will be able to be switched off. What cancer cells do is that they circumvent this natural barrier, um, and uh, the, the result is is that blood vessels are constantly being created or sprouting. Around uh, you know a malignant, um, malignant tissue, which obviously then can supply that malignant tissue uh, with with oxygen and nutrients and and uh, remove meta- uh, metabolic waste, which will result in, in further growth. So, um, sorry, a little extended parentheses there. No, cool. going back to uh, to our uh, to my collaboration with with Eson, uh, uh So. Yeah, I, I explained what I was, uh, uh, what I was doing and, and the process of, um, uh, you know, malignant angiogenesis and, and some conceptual information. And, and a couple of days later, he, he sent a, a sketch, uh, an animated sketch to me, just, just randomly, um, you know, a, a very short sort of hand drawn, animated uh, two dimensional 2D sketch. And, and he was just like, yeah, I, I, you know, I was thinking about what you told me and I, and I just, you know, drew this. And that kind of started this collaboration. I was like, "Hang on, well, wh- let's 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 take this further. Let's let's do more things with this." And um, uh, eventually, we ended up uh, working together on, on, on malignant angiogenesis. So uh, he uh, he animated or provided me with with um, around uh, eight to nine minutes of animation, uh, which we had he had hand drawn himself. Um, uh, based on various concepts related to my research, to to, to cancer research, so various sort of uh, hallmarks of cancer. So it focuses on cell proliferation, tumor, tumor tumor generation, and also angiogenesis at the same time. And he also did his own research, and you know he looked at the antiquity of cancer, and you know uh, Hippocrates and 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 Avicenna and how they described cancer um, uh, around that time. So he he sort of factored those in in his uh, uh, in terms of Is aesthetics, Um, so that's kind of how that piece came about. Uh, And uh, I knew that I wanted to do an audio live audiovisual piece, but I needed a way for the visuals to, uh, as I said, autonomously be directed without me having to worry about what is what is on screen. So I designed this Max patch that, uh, using JGL objects, that essentially did that uh, based on you know input audio. uh and uh yeah that's that's um that's how it came about i, I i'm not sure if i answered all your questions uh, if you, i didn't yeah. please
0: do yeah no certainly and, well it sounds like a really really interesting uh, relationship where on this piece with their son and so is 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 does he have many sort of computational is is he familiar with kind of generative art and was how did that was it literally he would send you over hand-drawn um artwork and and you would translate that into the kind of jitter gl realm or uh, how yeah i'm really curious to hear about that process
1: yeah of course yeah um so yeah he is he is familiar with with generative art and uh he he works in touch designer um uh although he mostly focuses on uh on sort of uh manually animated uh uh results so like he draws his own uh sort of each frame and, and then animates it um uh, but he is familiar of course we we uh we looked at a lot of reference material um when we decided to actually embark on this in this project we did look at a lot of generative art a lot of audiovisual art. art um, uh, one sort of very direct ins- uh, source of inspiration was Riojeda for that uh, for that specific piece his project datamatics in particular and of course Riojeda's work uh, was you know was uh, an inspiration to my other work uh, works in this portfolio as well but in particular the datamatics um, projects the audiovisual works that he has done um were were, uh, were kind of our reference material for this um, and uh, uh the way that essentially the the uh, uh, the visual aspect of the work uh works is is that there are, there are sort of two worlds one is the sort of 3d uh text-based animations that are designed by me that are reacting to to, to the input audio and they're fairly simple transformations you know moving about changing sort of brightness and intensity and color um um and presence within you know the, the entire 3d field so there, there are moments that the text sort of fill the entire the entirety of of uh uh, uh of of the window basically um of the screen and and then there are moments where we kind of cut into uh these hand-drawn animations which were driving the narrative of the work so uh the th- 3D text-based um, animations were, were not really uh, functioning as, as, as a narrative device. What was kind of conveying, or we, we were trying to convey information through was, was those cutscenes scenes that Ehsan had more sort of uh, intentionally, uh, or, you know, I would say intent, I, I mean, sort of in a more directed way drawn or, or designed to, to say something. Um, and there was, you know, the use of symbolism, of course, you know, um, a minimalistic portrayal of of, of uh, cell proliferation, for instance, using really simplistic shapes and, you know, circles, for instance, for cells and and lines for for blood vessels, and and the interactions between the, between these uh, sort of minimal elements um, was was attempting to convey the process of angiogenesis and tumorigenesis in general. Um, so yeah, essentially, what the patch, uh, the animation patch that I design, uh, does is is that it allows to cut between these these worlds, uh, but is tailored to live performance and live improvised performance, uh, which means that you know uh, every performance obviously is going to look different as well as sound different, uh, uh, and uh, it, it allows for you know f- flexible durations and, and uh, you know uh, yeah it, it gives. Myself as a performer, flexibility to generate uh, the visual um, material as well as uh, as the sonic material for each performance, uh, and yeah, it was it was kind of a pain <laughs> designing it that way to, to get there in the end, but but we did um, to to refine it um, in a in a way that um, yielded convincing results, um, but we got there in the end. Um, I would say there's a, um, there's a fair amount of, of, of control, um, sort of artistic control uh, in that piece with the visual element. I mean, I mean, it's a combination of indeterminate and determinate sort of elements guiding uh, the visuals, um, which kind of is an interesting interplay because I was improvising as well in the, in the audio aspect and the musical side of things. Um, <clears throat> um so yeah uh and as i said the this piece kind of led uh to uh another another piece of work which is data dialogues and uh you know it was a sort of um constant development that that led from one step to another to another
0: yeah well we can we can talk about data Dialogues. so it was a piece from twenty twenty two um, so, as you said earlier, that um also integrates uh modular synth into the mix um so I think that also gives a good opportunity to sort of talk about um instrument design in general and how you conceive of your systems as a whole and sort of how you how you see those various moving parts sort of fitting together um yeah, I'd love to hear about data dialogues,
1: yeah, of course um. Yeah, uh, so Data Dialogues was um, uh, what came to existence um, basically after I I had designed my own uh, Corpus Explorer using Flucoma. Um, And uh, I I started experimenting with the make noise microsound and tape machine uh, that we had um, at, at Beast. And around that time, you know, it was, it was sitting in the studio and I, and I just started playing around with it and, um, and I kept going at it. And I think for the most, you know, better part of a, of a year, I was just generating material using that. it was, it was amazing. It was fascinating, really fascinating machine. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, how it came to, you know, become data dialogues in the end uh, was uh, me trying to kind of uh, draw a link between uh, my data sonification or data-driven um, uh, processes that i was implementing in my max patches and the modular synth uh, so uh, you know from, from an interest uh, from an instrument design perspective as well it's it's kind of my tendency to to link different tools that i'm using you know to To make sure that there's interconnectivity, and that's that's one way that I kind of conceive when I'm, uh, you know, the, the whole process of instrument building or using those instruments in, in my live performance sense as well. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. So with uh, with the different modules or patches that I'm that I'm using in my in my work, I uh, I feel like you know there's a tendency or there's this uh, like compulsion for me to try to feed the output into the input of another, you know, from one to, into another. So linking linking them uh, together has always kind of been uh, an angle of exploration and experimentation for me. And uh, I, I did the same thing with, with the modular synth with the make noise uh, microsound the tape machine. So, um, you know, I had I had my sonifying patches. I, I had my two dimensional corpus explorer that I built in Flucom. with Together with Simon, and and I had to make noise, and um, um, and I thought that well, I kind of want them to be related to one another, so I, I'm going to try to modulate, um, the modular synth- synthesizer with with uh, the data, uh, and uh, that's how Data dialogues came to came to be. I mean, uh, right up until its performance in 2022, uh, you know the concept was not really clear. I mean, I kind of knew what i what I was doing, but the fact that I was having a dialogue with the data became more apparent to me towards towards the actual uh, premiere of, of of the work. Um, and uh, the way that it works, of course, is is that my uh, uh, protein and RNA data, of course, is is in a generative sense this time. so there there's no allusion to uh, to the context behind the data. So, in a generative sense, uh, it's, it's data sonification. Uh, so that that is uh, the data is uh, is being sent out as control voltages um, to to the make noise, uh, microsound machine, and uh, it is also at the same time uh, being mapped to spatial trajectories to move you know audio sources around um, using higher order Um uh, and of course, you know the, the easiest thing to do would be to also map some of that, some of those trajectories and some of the data to um, the corpus ex- explorer patch as well. So um, you know, uh, modulating different parameters uh, of, of the granular synthesizer uh, that was you know you know being uh, that, that was playing the grains essentially, and navigating it as well, navigating the uh, the two dimensional corpus um uh, window or, or explore um, <clears throat> and uh yeah so improvising with this system uh kind of brought about this idea of having a dialogue with the data because essentially enough f- it felt to me that that's what I was doing you know I um, uh, yeah kind of playing together with with uh with the data not knowing you know, when I load in the next sort of batch of 10 proteins uh, in, into the system, what's gonna happen, But right? You know, each, each of those sort of um, data points or, or those data vectors, essentially, because it's multi-dimensional, each of those vectors were being mapped to different places. So, you know, as I loaded in, uh, I would essentially generate um, a new soundscape. Uh, so I, I, I could have, you know, diverged from what I was um, playing at that time uh, at every, uh, at, 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 you know, any moment uh, when I sort of loaded in the next batch, or it would, it might, uh, it could have, I'm sorry, it could have also been similar, uh, or uh, just just augmented slightly. So something, something would change, but it's, it would still be very much the same sound world or the same soundscape, but some some element would, would change. So this. Uh, um, Sort of surprising aspect of it, and the fact that I had to respond to that musically in you know spontaneously in real time was 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 great, was fascinating, and it felt like a dialogue um, with those data values. Um, and uh, yeah, that's 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 how it um, that's how it happened, I guess, with with data
0: dialogues. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear how um, hear about this trajectory across across these different pieces and. Yeah, how this how this data's sort of gone from a from a source to up to in this piece sort of being in actually being in dialogue with it and yeah, you know, hearing about um, how that kind of relationship has built up over the years. And so is it over across these projects, do you is, is the data set the same or is, is it something that's perpetually updating or
1: it is different sets of data so it, uh, it is uh, it is a similar data type because the the patch is around as is built around that data type so it's uh, it's vectorial multi-dimensional data essentially um, um, <clears throat> but it is different data sets collected from different experiments conducted at various different points in, in time so uh, and and they all have different. Uh, sort of dimensions as well. There are so some. Some of them are, are have, have more dimensions. Some of them have fewer dimensions, um, or you know, higher or lower throughput as well. Um, yeah.
0: And I suppose one question is: <coughs> would, you, would you say that um, over the course of this um, sort of aesthetic engagement that you've had with this this type of data, do you do you feel that you maybe you may have gained, even if it's not something that you could sort of Say or explain or tangibly sort of put your finger on. Do you think you may have gained some kind of comprehension about that kind of data? Do you kind of have some kind of um, how would we say a, a sort of intuition about this data? Do you feel that you've sort of got to know it in some way?
1: In a in a way, I I guess I can. I mean, I cannot really say that objectively, and you know, and provide evidence to support it. But I, I can say that yeah, I've kind of uh, learned its behaviors, if I can say it that way. You know, in terms of sonic output or the way that it's translated into sound, um, uh, and you know, some of it is audible, of course. You know, when you play. You, you know, more and more with the same data set, especially if you use the same data set, or if you change data sets, then it's far more difficult to kind of gain that um, understanding, um, which is of course what I did, I both did change, but I also played with using the same data set, you know, for an extended period of time. Um, so I did kind of get an understanding, a vague understanding of, of behaviors that I could expect during performance. Uh, and that's how I kind of practiced or rehearsed for, for the performance, you know, because every time it was going to be something different, you know, there was not, you know, there was no real directed way that I could, you know, make sure that I was on top of every single aspect of, of live free improvisation that I was doing. Of course not. But uh, um, I was, I guess, prepared in a sense to, uh, to respond accordingly based on. Uh, vague expectations of, of what the data could um, bring about all of a sudden.
0: You know? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept and it's something that um, I think it could really interest the, the hard science sciences, uh, you know, this kind of aesthetic engagement with data. And, you know, even if it's not something that you can quantifiably and objectively kind of um, discuss or communicate i think yeah but this kind of visceral yes. yeah it's a yeah it's it's a really interesting idea um one, one thing i wanted to ask you about um so you you mentioned it briefly um another system that you've worked on that also uses some of the flucoma tools is a is an ai listening system yes um so uh yeah I wonder if you could perhaps talk about how that works um and perhaps more generally um how you conceive of a computer that listens in your work and how you may you may articulate it with your own ear um and I wonder if uh in um uh sorry the what because it's a complicated work it escapes my my memory but angiogenesis uh, malignant angiogenesis um there was a mapping between some of the sound output and the image generation. I wonder if if that was using this kind of uh, AI listening system or, or not? Uh,
1: no, no. At, at that point, I was I was not using machine listening and, ma- uh, and, and malignant angiogenesis. Uh, so that that was linear interpolation essentially, and uh, uh, that was sort of direct mapping or uh, you know exponential mapping between um, parameters. Uh, but with the AI listening patch or feature of, of, of my, um, uh, Corpus Explorer patch, which, which I came to call plotters, but that's the official name, by the way. And unofficially, it's always been called Harry plotter. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of a, you know, it's always been a joke, <laughs> but you know, um, yeah, I decided not to, <laughs> put the official name down as Harry Plotter, because then people would think no, that it's not serious. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so uh, the way that that's designed is, is uh, it primarily uses uh, multi-layer perceptron regression network. Um, and uh, it's, uh, in addition to uh, recording sort of audio, input audio into a buffer and uh, using the, the the slicer objects in the Flucoma toolkit, sort of and and you uh, know concatenation essentially. Uh, in addition to um, decomposing the audio uh, and plotting it, it, it also uh, using the, these regression networks that are trained on. Uh, Essentially, mostly uh, MFCC analysis. So uh, you know the um, mel frequency cepstral coefficients that are, that are derived. So those those data points are then being fed into the regression network, and uh, you know re- reducing their dimension, uh, their you know, higher dimension to uh, essentially navigate the uh, so into two dimensions from, from the higher dimensions down into two dimensions to to navigate uh, the corpus explorer. Um, but also you know tapping into the hidden layers of, of the regression regression networks I, I, I also extract uh, other sort of parameters or data for, for, for other parameters of the synth as well. So it's kind of tapping in there and also getting the output uh, to, to modulate different parameters um, So the way I, I conceive um, of the machine listening is, is uh, this kind of similar way that I approach using data in, uh, uh, you know, in in earlier in data dialogues. Um, uh, In many senses, in many ways, I look at it as, as another performer. Uh, And and similarly, uh, as, you know, as, as another dialogue that I'm having with some, you know, cyber data entity kind of to to put it in a, um, in that way, I guess. Um, And, yeah, and I, uh, I often stumble um, on really interesting results because you know I mostly use it as as a live improvisation tool. So uh, uh, it uh, you know it interjects me. It sometimes builds on what I'm doing. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, of course I, I exert my control as well. I can limit uh, the the extent of, of its control of, of the AI listening control of of the synth. Um, so I can allow it at some points to. To explore the corpus one corpus while I'm I'm exploring the other corpuses in my patch, um, or um, uh, you know I can allow it to take over, I can I can cut that access uh, and and freeze its you know sort of uh, function. So then that would allow me to to find these moments. So it, it could interject me, but I that interjection could you know build into a whole other section that I can then build on. Um, uh, or if i'm you know playing an instrument for instance uh, you know if it lands me on on some other area of, of my two-dimensional corpus display uh then it triggers or inspires me to do something else on my instrument uh to uh, to, to make a shift you know to uh, or you know, to develop something further for instance to develop a phrase further or uh yeah, so it's it's this again, as you see, it's this kind of dialogue that it's um, I, it's uh, it has a very intriguing effect on uh, on the output itself, and also on how I approach uh, and listen to you know what what it's doing. I, I, I find that in many ways it has made me more uh, attentive to you know to. To listen to i mean obviously if you're live improv- improvising you, you have to be as attentive as possible you really have to be all the way in the moment um, but i think this even enhances that because i really need to be prepared and you know i don't know uh, i mean to some extent i can expect it to do certain things based on how the model is, is trained but that's not always consistent you know like it's um it can misbehave sometimes and and those sort of instances can produce really interesting results or, or open up sort of new possibilities and in, in, uh, in the improvisation and a new directions that suddenly the you know the piece can go
0: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah so it's uh, it's it's and it's, and I do have to add it's this is something that I'm still working on so you know I have so, sort of ideas to to kind of network different neural networks with one another and I've already kind of done that to, to an extent, but it's still a work in progress. So, you know, kind of feeding the you know, uh, influence of one regression network into another one and, and then sort of cascading and then see what kind of results I get. So this is something that I'm kind of playing this around with at the moment. Uh, and my understanding, of course, is, is, is going to change and, and the way I feel about it as well as, as a performance tool probably most probably is going to change at the moment this is where I am with it so um I I kind of like it and you know I trust it to <laughs> to not entirely ruin um <laughs> uh, my, my performances and it hasn't really done that yet um mainly because I I, I, I am very much on top of it I, you know, if I sense that it's it's going somewhere that it shouldn't shouldn't do I can like I freeze it I I stop um letting it take uh take control
0: yeah yeah well, it's good to hear that you've, you're sort of encroaching on that balance that i think many people try to find between chaos and and surprise and and control and so, yeah, it's something that's not easy to find and it can take a lot of fine tuning and requires experience with one's own patches i think so it's a sausage but yeah no it's interesting to hear how you kind of fashion the computer into this this very active agent um that, that that's really uh, performing with you and, and, and making decisions that are that are impacting the work
1: slightly anthropomorphic i would say you know i kind of sometimes see it as a, as a person but, <laughs> yeah know, that's not the case but um yeah just just a side note <laughs>
0: yeah um another thing i wanted to ask you um uh, so you you've worked with um both supercollider uh, Super and max over the years and you mentioned earlier that your upcoming album is uh, is is using a lot of supercollider um i'm always curious to hear people um explain sort of what drives them towards one creative coding environment to another um what you consider to be the affordances and limits uh, limits of each and you know, sort of generally describing their relationships with the with the creative coding environment in, in their practice. So I wonder if you want to talk about that and maybe also talk about the, the this upcoming project that's, uh, that's on the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in all honesty, <laughs> um, uh, I, I resisted Superglider for, for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Scott Wilson, you know, recently told me that, oh, the great irony that, you know, you resisted it for so long and then you ended up doing a whole album in it. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> he is right. <laughs> uh, but the main reason I resisted it was because um, uh, I just found my creative coding side to, to flourish in, in Max. And um, Learning Curve and in, in glider of course, is very steep and, and you know, um, I am, of course, familiar with code with C uh, based languages, you know, I studied C sharp, and I know C plus plus, you know, a little bit not not that well, I, you know, but um, <clears throat> I'm generally comfortable with code, it doesn't really scare me off. But um, yeah, there was there was something that blocking me. and And, and I think that was, for me personally was uh, was debugging and troubleshooting, per se, in Superglider, which is really tricky, can be really tricky sometimes, and can make you pull your hairs out. Um, um, but yeah, anyway, uh, um, during, during the lockdown, of course, you know, I, I, uh, uh, Scott was kindly sort of hosting um, Superglider sessions, teaching us, and, um, uh, and we also had sort of live jamming sessions, which was wonderful. And I learned a lot, and that sort of started um, me down or sent me down this this sort of um uh this this um this path uh and then i you know I'm using it a bit more and more and um nowadays it's kind of integrated into my performance set, so I am feeding the audio from my super collider patches into my max, bar, so that the interconnectivity that I mentioned earlier uh you know so i I, I find myself you know um modulating parameters and on vcd rack with you know you know using osc and then feeding the audio into you know max patch and then you know feeding a super collider into into max patch and you know just a crazy matrix of (laughs) um yeah just (laughs) parameter mapping everywhere you know um uh so yeah um nowadays i find that it it really depends on what i want to do which which coding environment i would pick uh so the album that uh, that you asked about um which will hopefully be out soon uh uh is uh, essentially um a combination of you know what i call a bleep bloopy uh computer music aesthetic with uh persian uh classical music harmony so what i what i did uh um was that I, I drew on, on modes and, and scales uh, which were derived from Persian, Persian classical music and uh, and um, I, I used lots and lots of random generators um, um, essentially to, to operate various synths that I've made in, in SuperCollider and there are mostly experimental FM synths and uh, uh, so there's this combination of algorithmic stochastic uh, uh, Musical elements and also harmony that stems from directly from from uh, even Persian uh, Persian classical music, um, and that's the sort of whole premise of the album. Um, it is called Random Walks, um, and because you know I, I use a lot of Brownian <laughs> motion patterns, um, and uh, that's that's the kind of. Um, core uh, drive core algorithmic drive behind uh, behind the whole album uh, but just to add as well uh, it, it most of the pieces are, are uh, semi improvised if not more than a bit semi you know may, maybe a bit more like there are fully improvised pieces as well so um, uh, there are some tracks of course that are that are fixed uh, that, that you know have a lot of sort of post editing and, and fixed composition. Um, and directed composition, but there are there there are some that are just purely improvised, fully improvised. Um, uh, some of them employ sort of just live coding, uh, just you know, mouse and keyboard, and and others I've I've used MIDI controllers to kind of modulate synth parameters. Um, so you know, for that kind of aesthetic, anyway, going back to what makes me choose one over the other. For me personally, if you know, um, if I'm if I'm going after something pitch-based and you know, um, uh, uh, using stochastic algorithms, I find that SuperCollider gives me more flexibility and, and, uh, and control over that. And I kind of like the output of it in that sense. I'm not saying that you can't do these things with Max. of course you can, but, uh, uh, but I just find, I don't know, there's something about, about working in Super Collider for, for that specific site uh, side that, that, uh, intrigues me. Um, and, uh, I find myself going to it. Uh, and of course, if I, if I want something highly modifiable, then I would op- obviously go to super collider as well, because I, 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 have that control to, to write my own functions, you know, and, uh, not have to, you know, try to work with a object that's packed. Um, so that, that amount of control is something that, um, super collider I find is good for. Uh, but really, you know, I guess it would, it depends, you know, what, how much patience you have for debugging and troubleshooting and, you know, for, for prototyping, for instance, I would rarely ever go to super collider. If I want to prototype something, max is the easiest way to go. Um, uh, and then, you know, I might realize that, well, I, I need, you know, this to happen or I can, well, maybe I can use flu coma, Maybe I can train a regressor. Uh, network again for, for, for this, or maybe I can, you know, um, uh, make a patch in super collider and do this. So, you know, kind of, yeah, uh, goal oriented, uh, programming, I would say that, you know, I kind of conceive and that's usually my approach towards, um, uh, so the, the, the balance between programming and, uh, composition side of my work. Um, yeah um did that answer your question
0: <laughs> yeah definitely and uh yeah no the random walks project sounds uh sounds really interesting so um cool uh well milad thank you thank you so much it's been really fascinating to hear you talk about your work
1: my pleasure thank thank you for for having me it's been it's been great um uh to to you know uh, to, to talk with you and and uh uh to uh to be featured in, in you know in the Flu- flucoma podcast series uh that's it's a it's a pleasure
0: Well, it's, it's, you're quite welcome yeah i'm, I'm sure people have thoroughly enjoyed hearing you talk about um talk about your work uh so yeah as always everything that we've uh, been talking about will be linked um on the uh Flucoma uh, on the page on the Flucoma learn platform where this uh, video shall be living and if people are watching on YouTube then they can find a link to that uh, down in the description as they will also be able to do on the various audio only um streaming outlets that this podcast also appears on um so yeah milad thank you again thank you so much it was great having you it's it's very great. Great.
1: thank you very much